Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Jonathan, and this is Fortune's Wheel. I'm going to be completely honest and admit to you that I'm just not happy with the way Season 4 is turning out. As I've said before in the show, I'm not going to produce a show that is, for lack of better phrases, less than. So in the meantime, you may be getting some extras here, not necessarily bonuses per se, but short episodes about the places we've been so far in the podcast and the people we've seen. And with Halloween coming up, as I did last year, I hope to pump out some good old scary folktales from our medieval lore. So I do hope you enjoy the show in the meantime. Today's episode, episode 52, is entitled The Woman of a Thousand Summers Back. I hope you enjoy the show. The Earl was in a foul mood. Traveling his earldom, he found himself bouncing over the last year across the land, one estate to another, in order to take stock of his people and their livestock, collect taxes, settle disputes, and the multitude other tasks that beset a nobleman of his stature. No doubt this sort of business, along with the not-exactly-first-class travel accommodations, would leave anyone sour. But as many a man throughout history knows, the sound of idle chatter after a long day when all he wants to do is sit and eat his evening meal in peace and quiet and reflect upon the day's experiences, well, the Earl's ears were ringing at the moment. It's not as if his wife's voice was altogether unpleasant. In fact, he'd always loved the tenor of her voice. It was one of her best qualities. It was a sound that truly relaxed him and relieved him of the pressures of being Earl. In fact, there were few things he didn't care for about his wife. She was an impressive woman, in most any way he could estimate. She had a sharp mind, a good humor, a delicate and beautiful body that was in reality stronger than he'd ever imagined a human body, male or female, could be, in that this attractive form had given him multiple children. Again, she was an impressive woman, a person he was proud to have by his side. At this thought, he broke his gaze from his food and looked up to meet her eyes. Dark, brown, an unseen depth in them, like good earth. Her eyes contrasted starkly with her strikingly blonde Scandinavian hair that flowed over her shoulders and down as far as her waist. He noticed a slight curl in the hair as it hung like a flag in mid-wave. Words fell from her lips one after another, and the Earl's thoughts once again turned dark, his foul mood returning as he reminded himself of the silence he hoped to have had that evening. And it occurred to me, the Earl's attention on his frustrations was suddenly broken by her soft voice, the voice he did admire so. Have you ridden through the town recently? She said. The Earl quickly shoved a bite into his mouth and chewed. Well, have you? she asked. She was challenging him. She was challenging him? The Earl of one of the most powerful earldoms in the kingdom. He continued to chew, no longer looking at her. She turned back to her meal. A few tense moments passed in silence. Only the sound of breathing and chewing could be heard. The mighty Earl Leofrich, she muttered relies on the hardiness of others to bring him his meals, care for his horses, polish his swords, and build his homes. Couldn't be bothered by the plights of these 
lowly people upon whose backs he depends enough, the earl said in a low measured tone. Another tense silence. The meals you eat, she began, but was cut off abruptly by her husband. The meals we eat are brought to us by these men and women in the fields. Yes, the horses that bring us to all the corners of my earldom are cared for by men of a lower station. Yes, the same people polish my armor and weaponry. Yes, and the homes we stay in each night are built by sturdy and skilled Englishmen. Yes, so you admit, the earl's wife interjected in a strong yet still respectful tone. But it was short-lived as the earl once again interrupted her, this time his voice increasing just enough to carry with it a tinge of a warning. I admit that these people, through their commerce, which ultimately finds its way into our bellies and in our travel and in our homes, these people pay their share of what I provide for them, he said. She knew he was right. But she was as tenacious as she was beautiful. Yes, she began carefully. Of course, they pay you for your protection. I understand. And you are correct, husband. Leofric, feeling as if the matter was solved, went back to his meal. Then he heard, However. The old earl sighed deeply and then ran his hands down his cheeks, leaning back in his chair. She sensed his rising ire, but she decided to push on. She said, the people, Leofrich, these people are barely surviving. They live hand to mouth as it is, but to tighten their belts further by withholding the very thing that will afford them more food, better tools with which to work for their and your benefits, to buy the supplies needed to continue their commerce if the people were given more money in their pockets, then they could reduce the risks all around them. Godgefu. Her voice overcame his when, this time, she almost yelled, How much food, protection, or comfort can be given to you by a dead man? His eyes widened, and Godkafu knew she had pushed her husband to a point very few have ever pushed him to. He was one of the most powerful and influential men in the entire kingdom, second only, though she would never put voice to these words, second only to the powerful Earl of Wessex, Godwin. Leofric had been a rock in the kingdom since the calmer days of King Canute, and he rose to even higher prominence through the tumultuous years following Canute's death. Those were unsure days, early in their marriage, during her fertile days of childbirth. As a wife, she was sure of her husband's abilities, but as a mother, she was unsure of the situation as a whole, when it seemed as if whoever was king took a side, took a side role to the rivalry between Leofrich and Earl Godwin. But they had weathered Harefoot's days, and then the catastrophe that was Hartha Knut's days came and went, and here they both still were, sitting in an estate in a town that seemed to spring up out of nowhere in recent decades. It was a town owned by Leofrich's wife, Godkafu, called Coventry. And the people of Coventry played a more and more prominent role in his workings, within the kingdom at large, largely due to its placement on the island, which is a very central place on Mercia's eastern lands. 
This put him close enough to keep an eye on Northumbria to his north and East Anglia to his east, while also being a stone's throw from London and the border with Wessex. But the people of Coventry required a lot of their earl too, which is why he requires from them the taxes he does. And he will not have his decisions on political and economic matters questioned by his wife. Leveling his gaze to hers, he was met with equal fire. Outside, he was a fierce warrior, but inside he felt himself amused and softened by her ferocity. She was just that. Fierce. Again, she was an impressive woman. But this conversation was finished as far as he was concerned, but he knew it, when it really came down to it, wasn't really finished. He would suffer the consequences of it in various forms until she was satisfied. He knew this. However, if he could make it so she couldn't win the argument. Hmm. He leaned back, his eyes relaxing, forming a plan in his mind. They stared at each other for a few more moments, neither willing to give in. Leofrich devised a deal that would challenge the very thing his dear wife held closest to her heart, her sense of purity and her devout faith. So you want me to unburden the people of Coventry by a lessening of taxes? He asked, though it wasn't really a question. Confidently, Godgifu responded simply, I do. And you understand, he said, the consequences of such a decision? Less money in my coffers limits my abilities to offer support and protection to these same people. I understand, she said. These people, they mean that much to you? They are God's children, same as you and I. Then so be it, the earl said slowly and strategically. I shall leave these people of their debts to me. And as he said these words, she smiled and nodded. And as she lowered her head to resume her meal, the earl continued with, On one condition. Godgifu looked back up to her husband. A silence between these two seemed like it would never end. Finally, Godkafu broke their standoff, saying almost feebly, And on what condition would that be? Earl Leofrich drew an almost rehearsed deep sigh, looked down at his food with the hint of a smile, and said, You will ride through the center of town on horseback. Her eyes squinted. And as her body language eased and she opened her mouth to accept, her husband threw down the gauntlet with the word, Bear. She tensed instantly. She quietly laughed, took a drink of wine from her cup, and as she placed it down, she saw that her husband smiled at her coldly. She knew now his game. He knew of her deep faith in God. He knew that she was a proper lady who would never dream of insulting or embarrassing or misrepresenting her husband, the mighty Earl of Mercia. But what he didn't know was her resolve. I accept, she said. Then she stood and excused herself from the table. And as she smiled at her husband, the look of shock across his face was all she needed to confidently create a plan. The day of the ride was here. Godgifu wore nothing but a long, heavy cloak 
draped over her shoulders that she wrapped around her. Her right hand held the two sides of the cape closed around her waist, and her left hand clasped both sides around her neck just under her chin, her long flowing hair tucked inside. Her horse was ready and waiting in front of her, two soldiers on either side, already astride their horses. She walked proudly toward her horse and allowed a chambermaid to gently pull the cloak from her grasp. As her husband suggested, she was indeed bare to the world. Earl Leofrich grimaced and sighed as if to say, This is ludicrous! Two women helped her onto her horse, which pawed at the ground in front of him and snorted. The late morning air had a slight chill to it, but was pleasant enough. The sun peeked out from behind puffy white clouds every so often, spilling a brilliant green on the grasses, fields, and trees all around the estate. The town of Coventry could be seen in the distance. Without looking back, she settled her flowing hair in front of her, took the reins, and urged the horse forward. The two knights, their gazes never turning to their earl's wife, also moved alongside her, matching her pace. On the road to town, a few men and women could be seen walking to and from, and each one kept his or her head facing downward, which the soldiers thought was curious, though they didn't say anything. Within the hour, they rode into town along the main thoroughfare. The road itself was still damp and soft from the rains the day before, and as she approached, those few who were still milling about town quickly quickly ran inside and shut their doors and windows. Those who were too far from home simply kept their heads facing downward as she approached and then passed. Her brilliant golden hair covered herself in the front. However, everywhere else was free to the sun. It was a silent ride through town. The townspeople were either absent or were quietly praying a quick thank you for Godkifu's sacrifice of her honor for their benefit but it all seemed to be orchestrated. Everyone knew their places, their roles. Everyone knew the expectations. No one gazed upon her form as she approached and passed. Everyone seemed to act in unison and with purpose. It was as if a plan had been hatched and disseminated. The soldiers were on the lookout for anyone breaking their oaths to the Earl's wife, but they found no one, save one. A local man named Thomas was a bit of a loner, a maverick. He was unmarried, having lost his first wife in childbirth and given his daughter up for adoption, spent many nights inside Ewan's place. Ewan was equally beloved by certain men of the area as she was despised by the women. Ewan and the girls who lived in her home sold their services, and it seemed Thomas had built up a reputation as one of the harmless scoundrels who frequented the shop. Otherwise, Thomas was a forester and would disappear for weeks at a time, felling trees and traveling the region, selling the wood. Thomas happened to walk into town at the very moment that Godkafu was riding through, and as the lady was still at the other end of the road, a woman pulled him into her husband's shop and quickly shut the door. Thomas, you cannot be outside right now, she hissed. Shocked and confused, Thomas asked why. The Earl's wife is riding through town. Bear to God and God alone, she answered. In exchange for this act, the Earl has agreed to 
ease the taxes for us all. Rattling this around his head, Thomas got stuck on one detail that would catch in a, in a mind like Thomas's. He said, Wait, do you mean to say that the lady is without clothing? Yes, you nitwit. And we all promised in front of God that we would honor her sacrifice and humiliation by not gazing upon her. Thomas thought about this as he sat down on a ledge. He rubbed his shoulder as he thought, because as he sat down, he bumped himself against the wooden shutters of the window to his right. He always had dreams of marrying into a wealthy noble family and having a noble wife. He knew it was silly, but the imagination has its own motives and prerogatives. He'd probably never have an opportunity to get so close to a nobleman's marriage bed. The clicking and clopping of horses' hooves grew louder as he weighed his options. The woman eyed him for a few seconds and then turned to continue her work, turning her back to him. As the hoofbeats were nearly outside the building, Thomas gently and quietly put his fingers between the two sides of the shutters, pried them open, and lo and behold, the earl's wife, Godgifu, in all her unimaginable beauty, rode just feet from him. He took in her form, smiled, and suddenly the world grew dim. A fog blew through the street and blocked his view of her as she passed. It was a strange day to have such a late fog roll in. In fact, Thomas had never seen such a thing, and it grew thicker and thicker as the three horses slowly walked past. Suddenly, the shutters slammed shut. Thomas had moved instinctively, narrowly avoiding his fingers getting jammed between the planks of wood covering the window. He heard the woman hissing, you damned fool! What did I just say? We swore an oath to the, that the people of Coventry would not look upon her. Thomas waited for his eyes to adjust to the darkness of the shop he was in, as he said, Yes, but come on. I mean, what's the big deal? The big deal! The woman almost screamed in disgust. Thomas noticed just how dark it was in the shop. He didn't remember it being this dark. That's strange. The big deal is that we swore it, you buffoon, as God was our witness. And it was then that the darkness of the shop, rather than brightening up as his eyes adjusted, just continued to get darker and darker until Thomas saw nothing, nothing at all. The rest of Godgafu's journey outside of that shop went smoothly. The soldiers noticed no one trying to steal a glance at Godgafu. And no doubt, and no disreputable man or gang tried to interfere with the procession either. Godgifu and her two guards left the town at the other end and took a more rural route back to Earl Leofrich's castle. Excuse me, estate. When she approached, the soldiers guided their horses away from the lady, and she rode her horse up to her husband, who stood waiting where she had left him earlier. He looked like a man beaten but he wore a smile. He knew he'd been bested, and he respected his wife for it, even if he was appalled at what she'd done. She looked him straight in the eyes as she approached, and she never broke eye contact as she swung a leg to get off the horse. Her chambermaids quickly brought her her robe, but she waved them off. She stood in front of her husband for a moment, and then gently pushed her long hair aside so it flowed behind her once more. He shook his head again, a man bested. He took two steps toward her, 
and and outstretched his arms to embrace her and welcome her home. With a straight face, she took two steps toward him, but instead of allowing his arms to embrace her warmly, she turned to the side. Her eyes stayed locked with his, but her hard face broke into a subtle smile as she walked past him into the house. That, of course, is a very old legend. As we hear this story today in 2021, it's about 800 years old or so. And for those playing along at home doing the math, you'd know that that's the year 1221. But I thought Earl Leofrich, more or less a product of Canute the Great, lived in the 11th century. Well, yeah, he did. And so did his wife, Godgifu. Godgifu was also known to be a pretty devout Catholic noblewoman, too, and beautiful, with long, flowing hair to boot. But the story of her ride through town, through Coventry, isn't actually recorded until around 1188, some 140 years after it purportedly happened. In fact, there is absolutely no evidence that this even occurred at all though it was said to have taken place in the mid to late 1040s, about a decade before her husband's death, just prior to Earl, Le- or excuse me, Earl Godwin's revolt that sent him and his family packing for friendlier places across the sea. As we will soon find out on the podcast, when the Normans pushed through England and truly conquered its people, the culture and society and economics and even its practice of Christianity fundamentally changed at every level. In fact, even the records altered many of the Anglo-Saxon names from the 11th century. Leofrich's name was spared any alterations, but his wife Godgifu wasn't so lucky. Her name was Latinized in the preceding decades and centuries after the Norman Conquest to become Gudivir for centuries. However, today we know Godgifu as Lady Godiva. Yes, the same Godiva you think of when you think of those delicious Belgian chocolates. In fact, the controversy continues today about the name being used for chocolates and has even turned a corner into the legal realm. According to a BBC News report dated October 13th of 2014, an intellectual property suit has been filed against the currently Turkish-owned and New York City-based chocolatier, stating that the city of Coventry itself wishes to reclaim the good name of Godiva for its original intended purposes, as a symbol of how one strong-willed woman took on one of the most powerful men in a male-driven kingdom in order to speak up for and ease the stresses on the peasantry. She's She's a symbol of strength, no doubt, and sacrifice. The Godiva in the story stands tall among the various stories of women standing tall over the men of her day, so much so that the city of Coventry has recently begun an annual procession, what we in the States might just call a parade, down the streets of the ancient city. But again, as far as we know, this event never actually occurred. And a big piece of evidence that slaps down this theory is how Godiva, or excuse me, well, Godgifu, owned Coventry itself in the 1040s. Leofrich had gifted her the land, therefore foregoing his own claim to its tax revenue. Yeah, so not only would Leofrich not even be getting Coventry's taxes, but Godgifu 
would never have even thought to ask her husband for the ability to relieve its residents' tax burden. Now, what I'll certainly concede is that due to her reputation, Godgafu might have very well released some of the tax burden from Coventry, which might have been recorded in some long-lost record. This might have planted the seed for the first recording of this story, written by Roger of Wendover, a man known for stretching truths, to say the least. Godgifu and Leofrich were known for their generosity during their lives and after it. The church was a huge beneficiary of their wealth, including a prominent monastery built in Coventry itself, so it certainly lends credence to some nugget of truth in this sultry tale. And that bit about Thomas? His character wouldn't be added until the 1500s or even the 1700s. Honestly, I've read so many things about it, about its origins, but I can't pin down a firm date or author yet, so I apologize. But it wasn't until hundreds hundreds of years later that Thomas was even added to the story. Either way, many centuries later, as the church tightened its grasp, no matter who was England's pope, someone in Rome or one of the King Henry's, the story added Thomas's character to showcase the dangers of the sins of lust and despoiling a lady's, do- a lady's honor. Thus, the legend of Peeping Tom arose within the same mythical story of a Christian woman's modesty and generosity for the common folk. Godgifu, Lady Godiva, would be immortalized in more ways than just chocolate. She would ride front and center in one legendary English poet's words. Some 800 years later, in the year 1842, the one and only Alfred Lord Tennyson further immortalized this 11th century noblewoman in a poem simply titled Godiva. From Roger of Wendover in the 12th century to Alfred Lord Tennyson in the 19th century, Godgifu is been penned into our collective history. And let's not forget about the Peeping Tom being added in the 1500s, and then again he was mentioned in the Coventry Annals of June 11, 1773. This just goes to show that the respectable and beloved wife of Earl Leofrich had an enduring effect on the hearts and minds of the English people for nearly a thousand years now. But she wasn't just a character in print. The Godiva procession was a festival, from May 31, 1678, and lasted until 1960. And as I said earlier, it's since been restarted in Coventry. Her image has also endured, though we really don't have any idea what she really looked like. The closest piece of evidence, the closest approximation we have, is what is widely assumed to be her body that was exhumed hundreds of years ago, and the common myth of Godiva having beautiful, flowing red hair was debunked when they found the semi-preserved corpse having blonde hair. Either way, the human imagination fills in what it doesn't have an answer to, and her scene, mythical or not, stands as a stern lesson in empathy, modesty, sacrifice, responsible governance, and justice. These themes have been visually immortalized many times, including Queen Victoria's favorite contemporary artist, Edwin Landseer. Landseer created a work entitled Lady Godiva's Prayer in 1865, depicting the Earl's wife boldly sitting side saddle with both hands open to the heavens while a peasant woman stands by with her eyes tightly shut. 
Shortly after, in 1871, Englishman Edward Henry Corbould painted his version of Lady Godiva complete with, well, much more uh, detail, as well as her name written in runes. Another 19th century painter, this one a Belgian named Joseph von Lerius, also depicted his Lady Godiva desperately covering herself with a green curtain, a horse waiting for her outside of the open door. In 1891, French painter Jules Joseph Le I'm going to try to pronounce this Lefebvre. Uh, I hope that was right. <laughs> uh, lent his talents with his painting of Lady Godiva in the empty streets of Coventry, covering herself with both arms, looking up to God, riding side saddle on a white horse being pulled by what looks like a nun. John Collier's 1897 oil painting called Lady Godiva shows a beautiful young lady with an arm across her chest sitting astride a regal white horse. Collier has Godiva looking down as if in silent humility in service of her people. Vitislav Novak, the famous Czech composer, composed an overture called Lady Godiva in 1907, and Pietro Maschiani wrote the opera Isabeau about her life in 1911. Needless to say, Godgefu's Lady Godiva myth had quite a resurgence during the Victorian era, which isn't surprising when seeing the context of both the Lady Godiva story and the Victoria era itself. Victorian England was known to be a severely repressive society, and, well, Lady Godiva, even in her modesty and humility, still stood as a figure who stood up to injustice, cultural or not. She also found her way into moving pictures as well, debuting in a 1911 film, and then again in 1928 in a film by the same name. She was a punchline to a joke in the 1933 film Cavalcade, as well as a 1949 Three Stooges movie called The Ghost Talks. She reappears a year later in Lady Godiva Rides Again in 1950, and again in 1955 in Lady Godiva of Coventry. There was even an Oxford-based cinematic retelling in 2006 in the British film using her name as the title as well. And still to this day, she continues to be a recognizable name. She's continuing to find her way into pop culture. Her name came out of rock legend Aerosmith's mouths. She's been a fictional character in the 1866 Charles Kingsley novel called Hereward the Wake, and the cartoon duo Mr. Peabody and Sherman helped her find a horse for the ride in one of its episodes. Oh, and as of May 21st, 1982, the 8.2 kilometer across asteroid 3018 is named Godiva in her honor. But most recently, she's been brought into our own times through Christopher Muller's acrylic work entitled Woman of a Thousand Summers Back. This is an incredibly rich tale from medieval history, and I've only begun to scratch the surface, so I urge you to read what you can about it. And I hope you've enjoyed my own retelling, my own version of the legend of Lady Godiva and Peeping Tom. I want to urge you all to spread the word and let others know all over your social media accounts, as this episode will soon become a paid-only episode through both Anchor and Patreon. I will not be doing this with every episode, don't worry, but there has come a time when, you know, I need to make some tough decisions about the future of the show. I'm positive my audience understands, though. Please know I wish I could continue producing it for free. 
next week, another standalone episode about another epic tale in medieval history. I hope you look forward to it. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time. Oh, 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 oh.